Boom! Welcome back to Get a Grip on Lighting Dark Sky Series, hosted by Jane Slade and Michael Colligan. That's right. The great and powerful Jane Slade. And of course, today on the show, we had Nick Dunn. Uh, he's a pretty wild guy. Um, he is the, a senior fellow at the Institute for Social Futures. <whistles> Look out. It's hot coming out. Before we get to him, we got to tell you about Keystone. That's right. Keystone Technologies. Go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Hey, we ain't ready to go dark sky yet. We need to, we still need to serve our customers, but Keystone's got that color selectable thing going. You can start lowering the Kelvin temperature right off the bat. That helps. So go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. That's KeystoneTech.com. We're all going to go dark sky and reignite a lighting boom. That's right, folks. A lighting boom. If we all convince ourselves that we're going to go dark sky and we're going to go for good reasons, guess what? Every single light fixture out there is in play. Of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, our patron and sponsor. Love all the peeps in there. But for right now, we got Nick Dunn on the Get a Grip on Lighting Dark Sky Series. So the purpose of this show, again, I'm stating to the listeners, maybe they've heard it before, but... We're trying to make the ethical case to the lighting industry. That's uh, distributors and vendors and people, contractors, people that sell lighting every day to start really considering and thinking about issues surrounding dark sky and, and light pollution and all that. And so this is our fourth or fifth episode. I can't remember which one, Jane, but uh, Nick Dunn, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you, Michael. Say hello to Jane Slade. <laughs> Hi, Jane. Hi, Nick. I'm so excited to speak to you today. As a design nerd and dark sky advocate, we really share those two bones in common. And so I, we, we've decided that we want to start the show by asking each guest about a very special experience that you have had in terms of a personal experience outside at night in the darkness did you ever have an experience in the dark that really changed your thoughts about your work, um, whether it was under the night sky or spending time around a fire? Was there a profound experience that you want to share with us today? Sure. What a great question to begin things. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I think sometimes the special arrives where we least expect it. And this was, this was for me, it was profound, but it was in the every day or the every night. One night, uh, I was struggling, trying to get to sleep, quite fed up with myself, did the usual things we might do, I guess, folks at home, sort of sat with the novel for a while, you know, wasn't getting anywhere reading that, um, tried to watch a film, bit too tired for that, even had a moment of madness and nearly opened emails, but didn't do that. And I decided to go for a walk. And uh, now I just live in, in the suburbs of the city, so still quite an urban area, still quite a lot of light pollution, well lit. But I just went for a walk and I headed out at night, uh, about three in the morning, and I was struck by just how beautiful the surroundings were. Uh, so close to my home and yet a few streets away. I hadn't walked down them before. And just to be in the relative stillness of an urban night was a really special and magical experience. And it inspired me to think about it more and perhaps think about how we might design these places a bit better. Hmm. Which urban area were you walking around in? So I live in the city of Manchester in the UK, so in the in the northwest of England. I see. And is would you say that nor the northwest of English England, where does that fall on the light pollution map? It's not very good at all, I'm afraid. We well, depends how you measure these things. If if you want to get a gold, then I think we get a gold, but it's probably the color of the sky, <laughs> not in terms of mm. uh Good performance for dark skies, I'm afraid, at all. You know, it's funny is, you know, it, I was uh, just in terms of just being observant of the sky. So just after Jane asked that question to our last guest, uh, Dr. Zibla Schroer, um, and shared a beautiful story about being in Indonesia and that. And so I went out for my a walk with my dog in Stouffville in Ontario, where I live. And I saw that night appeared a lunar halo. And I've never seen that before. And it was so beautiful. It was, I was literally awestruck. I don't know if you know what that is. That's when the clouds make a halo around the moon. And uh, I have a picture of it, Jane. I'm going to send it to you. But 
Um, it was absolutely stunning, gorgeous, and in the middle of a city with lots of light pollution. So there, there is ways that we can commune with, with the sky at night. It, a lot of times people just aren't looking up. Um, Nick, tell me a little bit about the Institute of, for Social Futures. What, what is the purpose of that institution? Sure. Uh, the Institute for Social Futures is based at Lancaster University, where I work. The idea really behind it, uh, I was one of the people that helped set that up, was that a lot of the way we think about the future is often to do with things we, we might associate with science fiction. So it's to do with technologies. It's about flying cars, wearable tech. Are we going to colonize planets in outer space? But a lot of the ways that futures are thought about and packaged back to us as members of the public or academics, scientists, is often with a very strong technological focus. The point of the Institute for Social Futures is to put people and planet back into those conversations and to really emphasize that we can have different types of futures where we really prioritize social relations, yes, but also the connections between humans and non-humans. You know, it's interesting, science fiction, whenever you read a book about science fiction, it's either about technology or like catastrophe. You know, it's never about, uh, you know, you never, you always, you're always in that imagining like total disasters or you're imagining like flying cars and going to Mars. There's never, or leaving the planet because we've destroyed it. Isn't that interesting? You know, it's always something like that in science. So it's good to hear that people are, are really deeply thinking about our future. Um, when you think about dark sky as a, an environmental issue, Nick, which it isn't really, so people don't consider light pollution actually pollution, and they don't think that the dark sky issue is an issue of environmentalism or pollution. Why is that? Um, I think it's because for most of us, most people, and I include myself in this, um, you know, We've grown up without dark skies. Many people actually don't realize what we've lost. So, you know, you, you turn your tap on, you turn your faucet on and the water comes out brown. You're going to have something to say about that. You know, you, you're walking down the street, maybe a car goes past, big loads of exhaust fumes. You become very aware of these things. I think the difficulty uh, with for dark skies and particularly light pollution is the levels have just grown and grown and grown. And we, we, it's kind of snuck in the room. We haven't really noticed it in the same way because it's just increased. Uh, so it, it's become kind of an invisible thing, really, and we don't talk about it. I'm so glad that you mentioned that about dark skies sort of being silently removed from our lives because I think one of the problems with the whole dark sky discussion is that most people don't relate to it anymore. So when you talk about dark skies, you're not really hitting a bell for people. And I really want to ask you, um, because uh, you're a designer and you're a professor of design, and uh, I have one question, which is really, you know, how does the lack of darkness impact the psyche of people in general. Um, but I also want to ask, how does the lack of darkness impact the process of a designer? Sure. Great questions. Um, right. Let's think about those one at a time. So <laughs> the, 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 the issue here is um, it, we've got a long history to sketch back, but I guess we've got a bit of time together now, so it's okay. We can talk through that. Before you get to dark skies, you've got to really think about what darkness means. And as humans, broadly speaking, and I, I don't like generalizing, but I'm gonna to have to, I think. Um, in the West, we have a problematic relationship with darkness. Post-enlightenment, darkness has been equated to evil, deviancy, badness, ignorance. Light, meanwhile, is goodness, it's virtue, it's knowledge, it's wisdom. So there's some really deep-rooted values about darkness being uh, a problem. And so therefore at night is when bad things happen, things go bump. Um, whereas light, having more light, it becomes shorthand for cleanliness, clarity. So when you ask people to think about darkness, 
they suddenly perhaps go back to that moment, maybe in their childhood, where maybe the parents or someone else said, oh, yeah, you know, but you, you really ought to be concerned about the dark. So that's some of the work that I'm trying to unpick as a designer when I think about how we might consider dark design, I guess, if you like. So how you start with the darkness and you design with darkness rather than against it. The difficulty uh, for many designers, particularly in urban environments now, is we're at a situation where there's so much light, a lot of it not needed, but it's very hard to take it away because a bit like taking cars off people, it feels like a punishment. We, we, we become acclimatized to it. So thinking through different ways in which we can live and different types of environment we can have um, becomes a major challenge. And to be clear, I'm not suggesting we turn all the lights off, but it would be perfectly practical and possible to dim them considerably and design them better so we're not having all these ongoing effects uh, for our own health, and also that of, of other creatures, of course. You know, I, I think that there is a, um, a perception versus a reality problem. And, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. So since I started this show with Jane, I've been very aware of outdoor lighting. And I, get, I come to work very early in the morning and the highway is empty. And so I see the highway in front of me very clearly. And there was this patch of the 404, which is a major artery in in north of Toronto, um, six lane highway, whatever, maybe eight now. Um, and all of a sudden at this one point, all the fixtures are dark sky friendly and they're very low to the ground. They're all shielded and they're 3000 K and then it stops again. And then it starts again. I'm like, why is this? I couldn't figure out why, but it's beautifully lit. Actually, the road is totally lit and there's no glare. Okay. So it's beautifully lit. It's just all shielded and there's no glare and all the light goes on the road and none of it goes in your eyes. And I kept thinking, why is it like this? And then I realized, cause I was kind of thinking through the show today, the airport is right there. And those two spots are where the planes come in to land at night. And this is a small, like it's not, it's a regional airport. So it's a lot of pro small propeller planes and all that. And the light from the led lights was literally blinding the pilots and they couldn't land their planes because it's all direction. It's coming, it's going up towards the horizon. The light's coming off the light fixtures. And so there's a situation where the need for it was pertinent and immediate. And so immediately it was changed because nobody likes plane crashes, right? But there's a, there's a problem with us humans. We can't, like the problems we create incrementally can accumulate over generations. And so it's, an, it's like hazardous waste in a landfill. The water moves nine meters a year. How long does it take for that contaminated water to get to Lake Ontario? Could take 90 years, right? Or to get into the water system. How do we get over our, the, the problem with our lifespans and our memories and in these pollution problems that we have, including light, light pollution? I think you've got to have options. The big, the big issue for us at the moment is we have very little uh, in terms of options. Here in the UK, uh, public lighting, amenity lighting, that of infrastructures is dictated by particular British standards. Um, so it makes it quite hard to intervene. So that's sort of a practical level, but there are people working with policy and communities to show and work through alternatives. And I think the other, the other thing which I've been doing a lot of over the last few years is first-hand encounters. Now, just to explain a little bit about that, uh, my home city uh, in 2014 decided that it was going to replace 56,000 lamps with LEDs. But of course, these kind of arguments, particularly at the time, not so long ago, I know, were made on economic reasons rather than thinking about ecological values or other reasons why we might make decisions. So we've ended up with much brighter lighting right the way through across the city. And people are just used to it now. So this very sharp, glaring LED light, not particularly uh, well-fitted or, or designed in terms of the shades and the covers. So I've actually been doing tours uh, with members of the public and groups. They're just quite informal things, the free. And I will take them to some of the places where there are still different types of darkness. We go as a group. So it is a, it is a group experience. And that helps because people don't feel unsafe. 
but they become really fascinated by the this is great. This feels really good. I can I can see the night sky here, actually, even though I'm in an urban environment. And people begin to understand that maybe what's been installed on their street isn't the only way. But I think it's, it's finding those openings for people to, to get a chance uh, of empowerment and engage them so they can commit to some action on these issues. And I think they don't understand how to do that. I think that that's so important, firsthand experiences. I totally agree with you, Nick, because I think we've really forgotten uh, as a as a whole population on Earth. We just don't remember. And I, you know, I think a lot about how when we're in constant brightness, that it illuminates all the extents of the spaces that we're in as designers. So it's kind of the opposite as what you would think, which is that when you turn the lights out, the walls disappear and suddenly you can start to daydream into infinity again without all of these potentially perceived limitations that don't really exist. So getting back to my earlier question, which is that I really feel that the importance of darkness will make us better designers. And how have you seen that in your role? I've I've seen that uh, in specifically in my role by allowing um, different options for internal and external environments to be created. So actually working with darkness, working with different types. So we've been um, exploring a wider array of sensations and interactions with light. I mean, I'll be clear, it's quite experimental at the moment. So you, you wouldn't necessarily want this down Main Street at the moment because it would, <laughs> would probably be too big a jump for, for, for many people, including quite a lot of my neighbours. But working through these new visions and interventions, it, it allows people to understand there are decision-making processes. And rather than thinking about the cost of light, we're really trying to place an emphasis on the value of darkness and subtlety, nuance, color temperature, you know, shading, all these things can really create a different array. And I've been doing that um, at, a, at a spatial level, I guess, in terms of interiors, but I've also been working with some of the cities in the UK, like Glasgow up in Scotland, to get them to think about, you know, what a nocturnal commons might look like. You know, what, what is nocturnal urbanism? What does it actually do? I don't mean the nighttime economy. I don't mean making our cities just kind of like they are more in the daytime where people spend money and buy coffee and beers. I mean, actually trying to work with policymakers, other architects, urban designers, ecologists, geographers to understand how the nighttime city is different and what the benefits are, you know, I mean, in an ideal world, every child would be able to still be in a city and maybe look up at some stars. And we just know that is impossible in a lot of urban centers. Mm -hmm. Can you share some of these experiments that you're talking about in terms of uh, ones that we may not want down Main Street? I'm super curious. Um, sure. OK, well, we've been um, I mean, we're not the first to do this, but we've been um thinking through the impacts and playing with artificial bioluminescence. So the idea is that when you move through space, you, you essentially have traces following your movement. So it's just exactly where you need it. It's a little bit like being down in the very depths of the ocean, perfectly fine for quite fine motor skill tasks. And yet most of us, if we were to go into that room, uh, particularly before our eyes acclimatized to it, we'd think it was some kind of dark grotto. You know, you'd maybe think something bad was going to happen. Um, and it's, it, it's not like that at all. So we're working with artificial bioluminescence at the moment and experimenting with that. The other thing we've been doing is we've been doing a number of recordings. Now, we're not, we're not scientists. Okay. There are, there are astrophysicists and there are people that can record um, some uh, sort of measurements far more accurately than we can. Mm. We've been using different types of visualization technology and doing 24-hour recordings to record light levels and noise levels in urban environments so we can use these as communication tools to show how the different spectrums of sound, so bats, for example, at night can be heard and visualized, and also the different light, how that anthropogenic activity, how the impact of our, us on our environment 
during the day and during the night really exists and what we can do about it. So we're looking for the, the sweet spots of intervention, I guess. Mm. I'm curious, um, there, and when we talk about lighting and we talk about, you know, I interview a lot of scientists. I do a, another show on, well, this is the same show, but I do I interview a lot of scientists talking about the health effects of lighting, circadian rhythm, the need for darkness, human-centric darkness was one of the, the terms that came out, this idea that humans need darkness. But, you know, and the idea that humans are not a nocturnal species. And so like working at night can cause problems and all the different statistics related to that. But what I always find very curious is that, even though we are enlightened now and, and you know, we're in the scientific age and all that, there still is this sort of default to that humans are separate from creation or that humans um, don't have a need for darkness. We're just different. And the, uh, it's so clear that insects need darkness and fish need darkness and raccoons need darkness. But humans, we don't need any darkness. Why is that, that perception that humans are above this or something? Why does that persist in us so much? Well, we are a very, very ingenious species, um, but we're probably not quite as smart as we think. And I think therein lies the rub, I guess. Um, with all our technologies, with all our smartphones, we forget and we have detached ourselves. I mean, we've made some incredible um, inventions, you know, over the centuries. But by further removing ourselves, I guess, from what we might call, you know, broadly speaking, nature, we begin to lose our association with the other things that, that you're talking about. And so design has a big role to play in this. And this is something I've been working more recently, sort of some of the papers and some of the talks I've been giving. I think we've got it wrong. I think a lot of design uh, has been obsessed with the user and the user in that context is nearly always human. And so now we've got a human-centered world. We're slightly more political correct now because it's not always referred to as a man-made world. But let's be clear, it's a human-made world. It's for humans. It's human-centered. This is a fundamental problem because where I think we should be placing design is with an ecology-centered approach of which humans are one part of. And that's part of the problem. We design things for our own convenience. So, you know... Um, maybe I have a driveway, maybe it has a floodlit light, so my SUV is lit up. Well, it's okay, so what? Who cares, you know? But it, we, we are, we've ended up in this situation where it's very much about us uh, as an individual. Digital technologies in some ways have connected us more. They've actually made us more individualized in a strange kind of way and more separated. I mean, the pandemic has caused a whole other load of upset, as, as, as you both know. But this, the issue of human-centered design in products, in services, in the buildings that we live, the highways, the infrastructures, it makes very little concession to the non-human creatures that we share the planet with. And the irony of that is that we've got loads of cascading effects that despite all our smartness, we don't know what we're doing and we might not know what we've done until it's too late to reverse it. So it's really important we start engaging with this issue now. I think that's such a, a great point and a great word you use, human-centric, because actually that's um, a word that Mike and I first bonded over, um, which was that I took issue with the term human-centric lighting because it's very redundant. Um, <laughs> all lighting is basically for humans. And also, you know, as humans, we tend to kind of think that we're visiting upon nature. And in that concept, we kind of lose that we are a part of it and that nature is also trying to connect in with us. But in that arrogance, we kind of act like we're just sort of, uh, you know, descending upon for a quick check-in and then we, we leave. And um, we, we kind of miss that there's any kind of um, potential communication coming to us. Uh, so I think that you are so right that a more ecological sense of lighting um, is is needed. And so what would you propose that that looks and feels like? Sure. Um, I think it's about sensitivity and I think it's about context. And I think this is this is this is obviously obviously the difficulty, I guess, because when you try and think about darkness, it's relational. 
Okay, so it's we have different sort of perceptions and, and feelings towards darkness. It's diverse. So there's lots of different types of darkness, even in one night, as 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 you both know. And of course, it's situated. So the darkness that may be around yourselves uh, later on this evening, and the darkness that's outside my window as I talk to you, are quite different things. Um, even though we're all connected on on the same planet, so. I think one of the things to think here is to consider, um, and um, the lighting designer Roger Narboni has spoken about this, you know, what we might have as dark infrastructures, you know, so thinking about low lit uh, or very carefully lit, if at all lit, um, places, so particularly our green and blue infrastructures, our parks, our canals, lakes, um, rivers, um, and also our treescapes, to allow the other wildlife to do what it needs to do or, you know, goodness forbid, actually just have the restorative qualities of night because they may need to rest as well. So that's part of it. The other the other element is also to try and reduce all the reflected light and light spill that comes out of buildings. You know, we, we've, we've experienced this perhaps many of us we walk through an urban centre and there's lights all ablaze, but of course there's no one home. You know, we have security guards uh, guarding empty space with all the light flooding out onto the street. There's got to be a better way of doing this. So we're working with people's perceptions, but we're also beginning to think through new visions for dark cities. Now that's really hard because as you mentioned earlier with science fiction, you know, when we think about the future, something's always got to go wrong or it's about technology. You add darkness into the mix and it's always dystopian. Darkness is about danger. It's about dystopia. It's terrible things happening. So trying to get people to consider the future of their places that might be darker than where they are and then feel comfortable with that is, is no mean feat, but we're, we're trying to work on it. So I, I think it's a good dovetail because you, you brought up the pandemic and, um, you know, it's interesting. I used to, um, I used to wonder about this even before the pandemic and now, it, now it's on steroids. Um, you can justify anything with safety. You know, it's like the safety card is undefeatable. It's like, you know, we need to shut down all the nuclear power plants in Ontario and go back to coal. Why? Because it's unsafe. Right. And it's like, well, that's clean energy. It's built infrastructure. It's working great. You know, why not just let, let, let it roll till the end of its life? It's been around for 40 years or whatever. Right. And you have this safety card that seems to be unarguable with. Right. And I sell lighting every day. I, I'm a lighting distributor. I, I own a contracting company that installs lighting every day. You wouldn't believe how difficult it is to even bring up the subject of less light outside. It's almost like, anachronistic. Why would I change the lights outside if I'm going to have less light? That doesn't make any sense to me. You know, what about liability, legal liability? You know, my cameras need to see over there in the corner because my employee said he slipped on ice last year and now he's on workers' compensation. And, you know, my, my insurance rates are going up because of that. And the insurance company says I need to have it lit up like a prison yard. Otherwise, I don't get it. There's all manner of barriers and they're all connected to this myth of safety. This idea that we should trade everything in life to increase safety. How do we tackle that problem? It's such a huge problem in the world right now. But with respect to dark skies, how do we convert people? How do we evangelize this correctly? Okay. I think you got, I think you got two ways. One is you go with it, Okay. And you start to brand light bulbs like you brand cigarettes, okay? So here in the UK, they have pictures of the terrible things that they do to people's bodies, okay? All kinds <laughs> of terrible sort of health impacts. So you can imagine buying this bulb or going in specialized. There's this terrible thing that shows you how you will look in, in 20 years when your sleep circadian rhythm is absolutely shot to pieces, you know, or it just has the creatures that are suffering as a result I mean, maybe the creature angle is a good one. You know, people like fluffy things. Less so about bats, you know, but it's a, so what happens is you suddenly not have a good, not a good time for bats. Not a good time no. for bats. No, unfortunately. <laughs> no, absolutely. But, you know, maybe you just go with that. I mean, I'm yeah. being slightly tongue-in-cheek here, but you actually print, you share the hazard, you share the health impact. 
for the human. I mean, in the end, this is an individual choice, right? Um, so you may have someone that's just interested in themselves and that light for themselves. But you say, look, this is what this is doing for you. This is the impact it's having on your life. Whether then someone still drinks alcohol, smokes cigarettes, or um, or puts a particular bulb in a fitting, uh, that that it that comes down to a choice, I guess. But the you know the flip side of that, I guess, comes really to a responsibility about being able to communicate with people, to engage with people in these issues, and obviously this shows part of that. Um, but it's also going sort of into communities, working with people, really trying to express um, what they're missing out on and what their children might be missing out on. But it's 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 a hard sell. You know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. I think, you know, uh, not to get political, but this is a little anecdote, which is that um, my my president, current president, Donald Trump, he nicknames everyone and he nicknamed Joe Biden Sleepy Joe. And what they actually found was that actually people didn't really mind the nickname, that it kind of backfired on him because people really wanted to feel a sense of calm. And so I think that there's this whole thing where we have forgotten the incentives of darkness. And so, you know, darkness is so important for sleep, for the repair of the body and the mind, for a rejuvenation, for a sense of calm. And the, the part that I'm particularly interested in is that it gives us a vantage upon our thoughts, that if you can step back from that waterfall of thought for just a little bit of time, that suddenly you're no longer immersed in all of the problems, but that you can start to problem solve. And so I think that as, as, a, as a collective uh, consciousness, we've lost that whole part of our day. It, it stops at 11 p.m. when most of us go to sleep or somewhere around there. So my question is really, how do we remind people of these daily incentives that don't involve, you know, some sort of astro tourism trip, which seems sort of out of reach, but that there are really more collective daily practices that we can bring in. And so how do we remind people of those practices? I would start with the basics. I think, you know, you, you, you say, look, it, it becomes part of the routine. If you, if you look after your, your health uh, in, in all aspects and your relationship with light and dark is part of your health, it should be a clear public health warning. You know, regardless of the political system, these are public health issues we're talking about. You know, if you dim the lights, if you, if you live without uh, bright LEDs disrupting your sleep, you're going to have a better night's sleep. You're going to relax. You're going to feel more creative. You're probably not going to have a row with someone early in the morning. You're not going to be so irritable with the people around you, you know, friends, family. Um, you won't be uh, struggling in the same ways with task function during the day. We're just not aware of some of these benefits. You know, we just think that we can keep going on. And some of the devices, of course, that now uh, are around in our homes stretch this problem further because of the type of light they, they emit. So we have all these devices and we we bring them into our home uh, through our smartphones, our tablets, some of our laptops. And of course, worse than that, we actually take them to bed. So, you know, we're actually uh, bringing them into our relationships, you know, it's uh, with with what, what should be perhaps the most intimate time, if only for ourselves in terms of relaxing, you know, letting go of the day, shrugging it off, settling down. We're actually jarring our thoughts with these things, overstimulating through our social media and other things. And then, and then of course, being slightly surprised that we don't sleep well or we don't relax or we maybe feel a bit more you know. And it's a, it's a kind of equivalent if you keep getting up and prodding yourself every 15 minutes. We don't see it like that. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, if, if, if we had that relationship with it, I think we would, we might put things to the side uh, in, uh, in a slightly different way than we do at the moment. So we've done, we've done about, uh, give me one second here, Jane. <laughs> we've done like, uh, I don't know, four of these or these podcasts or whatever. And it, it seems like there's, there's like different angles that need to be taken. One, we need, we need regulation and ordinances and these types of things, right? We need to teach people how to uh, deploy and construct and create 
dark sky friendly lighting systems. We need manufacturers to produce, mass produce dark sky friendly systems. And we need to create the fourth, um, the, the fourth thing was we need to create like a, like a snobbiness or a snootiness among the elite in lighting where if people don't take dark sky seriously, you cannot be a, a good lighting person, whatever you are, a distributor or a lighting designer. Like if you don't, if you don't embrace this is, issue wholesale, you're not allowed in the club or you're a junior member. <laughs> you don't get, you don't get, you don't get, you don't learn the secret handshake until you, until you're, you're, you know, you embrace this issue because there's a lot of, when you, when you talk to lighting people about this, it's, it's almost like everyone feels guilty and they're like, yeah. Um, ooh, yeah, there, you know, that, there's a lot of LED lights we put up in the last 10 years that are really bad, actually. But I want to encourage people, like, this is a potential lighting boom. Like, the industry should totally embrace it, 100%, and say, you know what? We screwed up. Time to start over. Remember all those lights? We, we're all going to get rich. Like on this, let's do the training. Let's do the, but why is the industry so against the, 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 um, the dark sky movement? It seems like they've been antithetical to one another till very recently, the IES and the dark sky got together and put up five principles. Why has it taken so long? Why are most lighting people against this issue? Like they see it as an inconvenience. Um, well, from my perspective, I think it's some of what you're talking about, Michael, in the sense that we're, there's a professional embarrassment. So we don't really want to admit it. It's a bit of a dirty secret. You know, it's like, uh, you know, we kind of didn't get that right. And I'm kind of part of the problem. So maybe it'll go away. I'll just keep doing my thing. You know, it's uh, kind of off you go whistling into the sunset. The the other issue, though, um, and the solution is not always people, as, as we've discussed. You know, this is an ecologically based thing. But um, it's about the market. Okay, in the end, if, if you know that's the other way to tackle this, and if you can create the consumer demand that wants this, the business will follow. And I think the, the, the issue we're stuck in at the moment is that brighter is better, whiter and lighter is good for have these makers feel secure, these makers feel safe. So I'm, I'm going to keep going, you know, and this, this powering up. And of course, if a neighbor gets a brighter light, that then maybe doesn't make my backyard look quite so good on my driveway. So maybe I need to do something about that. And you, you end up with this. It's in it's inadvertent. I don't think it's sort of, uh, you know, try, trying to be competitive with neighbors. But this, the thing just slowly grows to a point where people don't really know what's happened anymore. So I think if you if you can influence the market, the businesses will follow. Of course, you can get you can encourage some um, some of the businesses uh, to be market leaders in this and say, look, you, you, you could, you could be the good people in this. You could, you could be, you know, the people that are advocating for dark skies and creating products, you know, with a clean ethical compass, you know, that you're not doing, uh, you know, having serious impacts on, on humans, on non-humans, on the planet, you know, and you're making money. What's not to like about that situation. So I think you've got to go in at all levels. I mean, this, it's, uh, it's a public health problem it's certainly a political mm -hmm. issue it's an economic issue one of the problems is you know value always comes back to a uh, you know money it always becomes uh, financialized and that's an issue because even the environment has been in attempts to monetize that you know and, and that's not really going to work you've got to let people appreciate different values in this but i think there are different as you say quite rightly there's so many angles to take at this Thankfully, there's loads of people that want to do something about it, which I guess is where we all fit into this, hopefully. I think that's such a great point that you bring up about market leaders, uh, because I, I do think that when when different organizations or companies can make take a stance that they can they can really make a change. And actually, there was a recent study that showed that. Um, it, it's not actually street lighting that is necessarily causing all of the light pollution, that it's a lot of the retail signage and storefronts that are creating the light pollution. So if you were to say, oh, well, there were certain companies that were willing to have lights out and to make that stance, it could really make a difference. So I do think that we need 
a lot more market leaders to really step up and do this because it's so easy to do with the opposite thing, which is just brighter, brighter, better, better. Um, and so in terms of kind of creating um, people or or companies to kind of stand for dark skies and and darkness, I see that you also have been appointed by the IDA, the International Dark Sky Association, um, as being an official advocate. Can you talk more about your role and what you do in, in, for the IDA? Of course, it's uh, be delighted to. It's a relatively recent role, so I, I was only uh, appointed a couple of months ago. Um, but that was because of the work I've been doing, which relates to some of our conversation uh, just now, which is really about um, trying to show there are other ways to think about darkness and to have different relationships with it. So I um, edited a, a book with a colleague, Tim Edensor, called Rethinking Darkness. And this was, this was showing different histories, um, but also different cultures and different practices from all around the world, because they try to break this oppositional dynamic between light being good, dark being bad. So that was part of the reason the, the IDA was very keen for me to be involved. But that's half of it. The other half is I'm working with sort of multiple design professions to try and understand how we can design and change people's nocturnal design values. How do you design for the night rather than stretching out the daytime into it? So there's a nearby area of outstanding natural beauty near Lancaster University where I work, and they are uh, hoping to go for dark sky park status. And so part of my work would be working with them, but also there are very small urban areas, very small towns, probably you class them maybe even as villages, the light pollution that stretches from them in a fairly mm -hmm. flat land is phenomenal. So we're trying to say, look, you're traveling over there as a tourist during the day to enjoy this, but don't you realize that at night you're absolutely <laughs> screwing it up, even though it's 30, 40 kilometers away? And they're going, I had no idea. So it's about communication. It's about advocacy. It's about commitment and it's about action. So that's the work that I'm doing at the moment. What are the values of a nocturnal lifestyle or or experience that you're trying to cultivate? It's um, some of it's uh, what we what we discussed earlier, I guess, Jane, which is really for people to appreciate the night um, as a place in which a time and a place in which they can take a break from the day to day things. Um, they can mm -hmm. actually restore the thoughts. It's when creativity can come to play. You can go for a walk without having a phone in your hand or listening to music. You can actually enjoy your surroundings. Um, so it's really trying to show that you can have, you know, a built environment that's perfectly safe for um, people to walk around in, not bump into things, no vehicle crashes. You know, there's been a number of tests uh, and research that he's done here uh, in England and Wales in the UK that have shown turning the lights off at night in built up areas or, or dimming them, uh, you know, considerably makes no difference to crime rates or vehicle crashes. So it's really trying to show uh, really by example and demonstrate that these things can be done. I mean, I appreciate um, that increasingly and perhaps at the moment with the pandemic, people are working in strange, flexible working patterns that maybe suits um, the people they care for, their families, their friends, you know, this has been highly disruptive. At the moment here in the UK, about one in nine of the working population is working on call or long hours or what you might call night shift work. So those people perhaps don't have the luxury of a pleasant stroll at night. In fact, it might be the very last thing they want to do, to be honest. But we, so therefore, what you design and how you install it becomes more important for them because we can have better quality lighting for those people that doesn't have the same impacts on their health but allows them to go about their work. The, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the, the, the people that work at night. And one of the, the there's a couple of good things that I say come out of the pandemic. And people say, what are you talking about? You're, you're the biggest skeptic. I'll be all the rules, okay? But I'm skeptical, okay? Like I'll, I'll follow the rules, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get involved in you know I'm not uh, you know I'm not 
putting up uh, signs or anything like that. But I'm very skeptical. And one of the things that would, in, would interest me is like to compare, like when you, when you make humans afraid, they act so quickly, okay? It's um, like when you make something very poignantly real to them, like this, is a, this pandemic is, is very serious and the government does all these things and all this sort of stuff. You see change like that. Like people say humans don't change. They will change like this if, if, if it suits them, right? Like look at cell phones. I mean, look how fast we went to this. It just suits us, right? Um, and so we'll change quickly. Fear-based change is the fastest way to change things. Um, but I would like to see the comparison between the increased rates of, you know, cancer in that and in, in, in nighttime workers um, as a risk, you know, towards them and, and sort of put that into, con- into context with, you know, all the other things that are going on. Like every, every measure you take you're, there's, what's it? Social science, every solution in social science becomes the next problem, right? So light is the perfect example of that, right? So they say, you know, oh, in the, in the 1960s, they declared that, you know, the, the problem is that corporations need to seek shareholder value. That should be their number one value, right? Guess what? That's the problem now, right? Is that they're only after shareholder value. It's the same thing with light. People are like, well, more light equals more safety, Right? But now we have a problem with too much light, right? And it's almost impossible to convince people that, hey, there's a trade-off here. Here's what we're missing. We're missing the dark skies. You know, your grandfather used to sit in his car here with your grandmother and look at the stars, you know, 20, uh, 40 years ago. And now you can't see any of them. It, I, I, this issue is intractable for, for that specific reason, I think, is that most people have no idea what they're missing, Nick. And... Pictures, like even even the thrust to go to space. You know how you have like multiple people competing to take passenger rich people to space? I'd rather we just forget all that, use all that money to make dark sky so everyone can see the stars. You, you understand what I mean? It's like, well, you don't have to fly all the way up there. We just have to turn some lights off and then we can all look at the Milky Way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's almost as if, that is that idea of leaving the earth is because in a way we we want to get away from all this and something see something out there when really when you think about the pyramids the giza pyramid is aligned to the middle star of orion's belt every 12,500 years or something ridiculous like that you know how do we how do we get out of, like really go back to who we are primordial primordially with light like that's what i that's the the pillar i can't see a solution to like there's the there's the, the legislative pillar the legal pillar of light there's the, the 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 convincing the manufacturers to do it there's the train distributors and contractors there's designers um you know i can't remember all the other ones but like there's that pillar is so intractable to get people to see the value here and i don't know how to i get we're doing a podcast but this podcast is for lighting dorks it's not for the general public. Like, do we need a David Suzuki or a David Attenborough to take on this issue and just say, yes, this is right beside global warming. They're equal. They're equal issues. This is not, this is an environmental issue too. How do we get that to happen? Okay. I think you can do it with the crime and punishment route. Okay. So we could, we could uh, adopt a kind of blitz mentality. Everybody uh, blacks out all their houses, you know, no one's allowed out after dark. Everybody just stays in their homes, you know, no artificial lighting. I don't think that's going to be very popular. I dare say there are political regimes where you could do that, um, which perhaps raises ethical questions. I don't think that um, we live in either of those uh, as it so happens. And I, I, I'm not sure that that kind of change where uh, it's, it's seen as a punishment or as, or as a regression in a way is really long lasting or particularly positive for people. Because I used the analogy earlier, you know, it, it's a bit like taking someone's car away and saying they've got to get public transport. You're, 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 you're taking away someone's freedom. You're taking away someone's choice. So, Although that might work in some circumstances, it's not really an approach I would support. I think the key to this is really to show that embracing darkness is, is, is the logical next step. It's the logical progression that comes at this stage of late capitalism. 
we've done everything. We've mined everything. We've fished everything. We've taken everything. We've gone up into space. We've come back from space. You know, but the last, the last frontier, in a way, is the night that we have. And it's just at a moment where, you know, it could change forever. I mean, you'll both be aware, you know, we've got tens of thousands of new satellites have now been approved for launch. Pretty soon, our dark skies aren't going to look like they do anyway. Right. We've got no laws about orbit crowding, right of way, space cleanup. So, I mean, the, the amount of cascading, glittering debris that could be up there and, and impacting on our night scares. And this is an opportunity to mobilize people. I mean, the pandemic has been a great reset moment, as you say, with fear, but with, with health concerns, you can get millions, billions of people to do something quite quickly. We know we can do it but you need the levers and drivers to encourage the political will to want to do it. And at the moment, getting politicians to stand against what people currently see as their liberty is a really hard question where, and, and problem to deal with. One of the reasons why the pandemic has had such serious impacts here in the UK and, um, and in the US is because the leaders of those countries have not wanted to impact on people's liberties too much compared to other countries. There's not been the same levels of, of, of restriction. And I think, you know, so you, you could work with that power and you could say, look, we did that, but that, that was so early 2000s, you know, now we're moving on beyond this, you know, maybe we need, um, maybe we need an endarkenment rather than an enlightenment because you can't go backwards, right? You can't, you can't regress because otherwise people are just going to think, oh, well, we just have to have been Neanderthals now and we're just going to just use fire. And it's about backwardsness because of this long-held history and cultural associations that we have between light and dark. But you can go forwards. I mean, in some ways this is already happening, but it's not a good thing. Um, darkness is a luxury for those that can afford it. You know, people go off to these well-being places, these uh, sensory chambers. They have very, very, uh, they're blackout blinds on their, you know, downtown condominiums, whatever. Um, but light is a major source uh, also of inequality. I mean, a lot of the poorer neighborhoods often have a lot more light um, to try and give them the impression of safety and to stop people doing things. Because if you're lit up, we can probably see you doing that thing that you almost definitely will do because you live in a poor neighborhood. Of course, we know that's not true. It's nonsense. But these these values continue. So for me, I wouldn't go back. I think we need to go forward. And it's about showing that a balance between light and dark is a progression. Speaking of the balance between light and darkness, I think one of the problems in relating to the public is that when we say the word darkness, people just imagine themselves like sitting in a room, pitch black, without their devices, bored. And, you know, it's just it doesn't really tell the story that we're trying to tell, you know, which is that, first of all, if you sit outside, your vision, your night vision is going to get better over the course of an hour. So suddenly the night will become alive to you and your own senses in a way that if you just take your phone out of your hand and put your phone down, you can't see anything. So that's one part of it. But also that designing with darkness doesn't mean pitch black, zero darkness. You know, good restaurant design is beautifully dimly lit. Maybe you have a candle, but it's multiple sources creating this beautifully dim environment. So darkness is still visible. And so I think that is really my point is that maybe we need more things like a dark park, a park where darkness is really the point. Um, so have you heard of any projects or are you working on any projects that are really sort of promoting a, a more profound idea of darkness rather than the one that people fear uh, so that people can kind of um, be more interested? Sure. I mean, not perhaps the example you're looking for, because maybe it's not really contemporary, but in the mid-19th century, there was the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens in London, which is exactly what you're describing, Jane. It was a dark park where people, the great folk of London, went for restorative walks um, to get away from the increasing light of the industrialization of, of the city of London and enjoy these different ambiences, these different experiences and atmospheres. 
and it was very it was very dimly lit in there you know but it was a truly inspirational uh you know um experiential kind of um way in which people could engage with different forms of darkness there have been some attempts um I mean, Lenny Schwendinger, when she was uh, working, you know, uh, with with Arab, uh, they designed the Sarendek Park uh, lighting um, array for um, Biller and Scafidio's scheme there. And that uses a lot of borrowed light, uses a lot of reflected light off existing sources rather than just putting lots more new lights in there. But it, it's not dark, but it's darker than you would normally get in a, in a usual sort of, uh, you know, busy Park uh, in, in a major uh, world capital uh, in Moscow. So th there are examples out there, but I think we can try a little harder. Mm -hmm. do, do humans, and I've asked a couple people this, I don't know if you can answer it. No one's been able to answer it specifically to me, but maybe in all your travels and talks, you've, you've heard this before. Do humans have an anthropological <clears throat> relationship to fire and vertical low Kelvin temperature at night, maybe the high um, um, what's that, uh, IR, high IR, like the heat and the light together in the low Kelvin temperature at night. Is there some relationship to that color and calmness and intimacy, um, that promotes, you know, uh, feelings of closeness, um, that promotes, uh, feelings of wanting to be with family or is there anything that you've come across in your, in your, in your, in your career that indicates that humans have that relationship and that the TV is a very, and a device is a very poor replacement for that? Sure. Um, the, there have been some studies. I have seen a couple of sources that suggest that kind of focal point of a particular type of, of light or arrangement and also how we gather ourselves. I mean, as you say, it would have been in a circle around a fire a long time ago. Now it tends to be more in a in an arc, uh, perhaps around a TV set, uh, or perhaps we sit back all in a line. Uh, so it's quite interesting how even that is evolving as I'm describing it, you know, because we our televisions get bigger and brighter for our home cinemas. So actually that that spatial arrangement of us being together, being intimate, actually gets flattened out, you know, as we all get our individual lazy boys with our, you know, big soap drinks and everything else, and we actually separate out, even within our own domestic spaces. But there's certainly a relationship between um, light, intimacy, and um, togetherness, which I think is part of our part of our DNA. Really, is that is that sort of um, and what I have always wonder is that like creating an addiction to screen use at night? You know, you see people that leave their TVs on all night. People love to be in bed on their phones, and uh, to me, there's some there's something going on there. That is addictive in nature, and and sometimes when you're you have an addiction, you're getting that dopamine hit. But like because it's a temporary huge surge of it, like say from the light from a screen directly in your eyes, as opposed to low Kelvin temperature firelight with heat in it, right? Which may have an, a that that's a type of light that again, what's it? IR. I can't remember the name of it, but anyway, too many scientists, too many terms. I can't remember them all, but I know the feeling. I know what they're talking about. And is there some sort of thing that we're looking for when we engage these devices at night in the evening? People seem to be gravitating more and more and we're separating. We have our own fire and it happens to have all this information on. Is is that just wild and crazy scientific uh, science fiction thinking or is there so actually something to that maybe? No, I, I don't. I, I don't think it is wild and crazy thinking. I think it's uh, it's based actually in, in in the findings of of science. You know, you can see that what's happening is our our relationships, generally speaking, are moving more and more online. So it's easy for us to find our niche. We can be also different people online. We can be avatars. So we're not necessarily quite the people that we might be in real life. You know, so. There's, there's a comfort in, in reaching out to networks, which actually comes usually at the cost of actual physical relationships. It changes the nature of those things. Social media is a great example. It's a bit like a very sweet or salty snack. Kind of know it's not that great for us, but I'll just have a little bit more. You know, you do get that kind of rush. It's highly addictive stuff. And we can all, uh, you know, uh, it relates to the ego. It relates to the self. It can make us feel wanted. And if we're disconnected from it, 
if we don't necessarily have our digital pacifiers in our hands, we can be really concerned we're, we've got, we're missing out on something, you know. I mean, it's, it's surprising, you know, if you maybe put something on a, on a website, it might be professional orientated thing or, you know, more social media and, you know, a number of people like it. You know, there's not many of us that go, I, I feel quite good about that. And then actually, you know, you maybe take a step back from the thing. What do I really feel good about? You know, it's like it's 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 unusual. And yet if I had a longer conversation with someone and learned something about them, actually exchanged something, you know, I'd had a real conversation about something that might produce a very different thing. But our attention spans are shorter than they've ever been. Mm-hmm. And that is a big fact. Um, and so that's quite difficult when you return to the, the ideas we were discussing earlier, because even acclimatizing to, to darkness, as Jane was saying, it's a wonderful thing to do. But appreciating darkness is a slow process. Clicking through Facebook and Instagram and Twitter is not a slow process. And, they, and those things, as we all know, uh, can pull really sharp emotions very, very quickly. You know, um, someone's pet maybe passes away or someone says something inflammatory. I mean, political leaders are very good at that at the moment, you know. And there's so much vying for our eyes, so much clickbait out there that's constantly trying to do that. that and it's all negative. Were- yeah, it's yeah, all negative. It you know, I got a theory. And I, this is not about dark sky, but it, this kind of occurred to me because I, I, what you're talking about, like this is why I do podcasts because I, I, I love turning off my phone and sitting, you know, with Jane or Greg or just another person out there and having a meaningful conversation about a subject for an hour. And yeah, it's just it's very it's it's very very fulfilling to me. But here's my theory. You want to start a, a social network that you're going to make a billion dollars on, Nick? You ready for this? Okay. What you have to do is you have to take the seven deadly sins, okay? And you have to allow people to commit it as much as possible online in the fastest way possible. So Facebook is envy. Twitter is rage. Um, Instagram is vanity. Uh, 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 Tinder is, <laughs> is um, Tinder is, that's my, my producer laughing there. Tinder is um, uh, whatever it is, uh, lust. So you just take one of those seven deadly sins and you allow people to commit it on, on the social network and it will explode as quickly as possible. So there's so much negativity in there. Whereas gathering around a fire, I never heard anyone say, you know, the, my wife and I got into a big fight sitting around the fire the other night. Never heard anyone say that. Never. Oh yeah, we lit some candles and 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 you know and, and then we had a you know we we really didn't feel close to one another. Like those two things, it's it's almost like a contradiction in terms in a sense. So, Jane, we're coming up on an hour here. What are you thinking? I you know you're Nick when you talk about attention spans. I I heard something where the average shot in a movie went from like ten seconds to three. So that's how quickly we're so used to this succession of change of images and thoughts and ideas. And I also think back to something my dad once told me when he grew up in New York City and then he moved to the country, upstate New York. And he said he would lay awake in bed and he would think about all that he was missing. He just felt like the world was happening without him now that he wasn't in New York. And I think that there is going to be a kind of deprivation that people first feel and that we have to push through that to get to the reward on the other side, which is that, you know, it may be awkward conversation with someone that you don't know very well to build that relationship. Or it may be awkward to turn off your phone and, and take that time to just sit in front of a fire and really feel that almost deprivation. But I think if we can push through that, and if we can show people that it's worth doing that, that there is much more sustainable forms of joy and creativity on the other side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, my only question for you is what's on the horizon in terms of your research? Okay. That's, um, well, the thing we're, we're about to do next is we are going to try and uh, walk our talk. So uh, we're going to be looking at how we can develop more than human design. So we are currently working on a number of experiments um, out in the wild, so actually doing things out of uh, out of our lab um, to really see the different sorts of lighting possibilities that we can have without uh, you know impacting uh, on the wildlife 
And this is partly with the Dark Sky Park, but it's also to see what we can do in urban environments. So some of it's a little bit, um, how can I say, I guess, guerrilla activity. We're kind of doing it on the run and on the on the go. We're just kind of seeing what happens. Um, there'll be more uh, collective night walks with people. We're doing a number of those still. So we're taking about 100 people out at a time, um, wow. sort of um, showing people different areas of urban landscapes so they can experience those and enjoy those. And just continue to keep the conversation going. You know, I mean, it's been wonderful to talk to you both uh, today about this, but just to keep this, keep this momentum going. There's so many angles, you know, the greatest show on earth should be when we look up at night um, and somehow we're, we're missing a trick. I think that's a good spot to call it there, Nick. Hey, um, yeah, we really appreciate you, man. Thanks for being a guest on the, on the show here, Nick Dunn. Um, Again, thanks. Thank you. Michael, thank you. Jane, thank you. Thank you both very much. It's been a pleasure. You got to go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, baby. That's KeystoneTech.com. Check out their XFIT outdoor light fixtures. That's right. Color selectable, baby. They got all manner of things coming in hot, and you know Keystone always keeps it easy. Light made easy from Keystone. So go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Keep it easy, baby. And the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. That's NAILD.org, our patron and sponsor. One of our, our the, uh, the, the official podcast of Nailed is Get a Grip on Lighting, of course. And Nick, fascinating, man. Crazy conversation. You know, we got to take this thing to the streets, though. And a lot of the talk in Dark Sky, you got these lighting designers, you got these scientists and all this, the distributors. We got to take these things to the street. We're the warriors. We're the ones out there in the field, man. We're the ones in the field. Let's keep it easy with Keystone and get out there and start making the Dark Sky choices. Yeah, we don't know everything yet, but we're going to do Evolve for you guys. When Ellis Evolve comes out, we're going to have all those hot modules on Dark Sky so you can figure it all out. All your employees can be hot Dark Sky masters. That's right. Go to NALD.org and check out Keystone, K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, baby.